0: One of the greatest blessings of the traditional liturgy is the fact that the ceremonies used have been handed down to us from the apostles and the saints. And these ceremonies, which come down to us from the saints, are so meaningful that the Council of Trent actually commands that every priest who has the care of souls to frequently explain some of the mysteries in the holy sacrifice. In fact, one of the most spiritually fruitful things that any one of us can do is to meditate upon the traditional liturgy. So today on the Feast of the Holy Family, we'll take a few minutes to meditate on the meaning of several aspects of the traditional wedding ceremony and the wedding mass in order to see what those ceremonies can teach us about holiness in our families. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, we're only going to skim the surface here, but you all need to meditate on this. When you're in the state of grace... You have gifts from the Holy Ghost, including wisdom, counsel, and understanding. And you can use those gifts to penetrate deeper into what we're going to talk about today. It's one of the things that we want to do when we pray. Is call on the Holy Ghost to guide us in our prayer and give us the light we need. And we can penetrate deeper into the mysteries of our salvation. Anyway, let's start today by considering why the couple exchanges vows right up here, the edge of the sanctuary, and then right after they're married, the newlyweds come up here, into the sanctuary to hear Mass. What does this mean? What is the Church teaching us here? For the sake of time, as I said, we'll only consider a few aspects. But in order to appreciate the answer, let's back up a little bit and review the relationship between the Garden of Eden, the Temple, and in Jerusalem, and our Catholic liturgy. Now remember that everything in our holy religion is related in some way to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, which is the very threshold of heaven, that's the perfect model of the conditions in which man can safely encounter God. For example, we see that holiness is determined by the degree to which something has been set aside for and dedicated to God. The Sabbath is more holy than the other days of the week. It's been set aside for God. The sanctuary in the garden is holier than outside. And, of course, there's no comparison between Adam's holiness before the original sin and afterwards. We see a basic pattern when we look at the garden. Adam is given the command to guard and keep the first sanctuary on earth, the Garden of Eden. He disobeyed, and all his descendants were driven out. The entrance to Eden was closed. It was covered. It was veiled, and God placed the cherubim and a flaming sword turning every way to keep anyone from entering the garden and approaching the tree of life. So the basic principle that we see here is the closer that a man approaches to the ineffable holy presence of the Almighty God, the closer he approaches, the more his accountability increases, and the greater the punishment becomes for any infractions we see a basic temptation in the garden, the idea of self-determination. I'll do what I want. The lie of the serpent was that man could be as a god, deciding for himself what was good and evil. But in spite of the devil's lives, man remains a creature. And therefore, he is bound to obey the law of his creator. In other words, he's bound to do what God wants. And man can only have a true and fruitful relationship with God by carefully keeping his divine law. Now let's hold those thoughts and take a quick glimpse of the temple. We've already seen before that the most sacred area in the tabernacle, which was the tent before it became permanent in Jerusalem, and then the most sacred area in the temple in Jerusalem is called the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant was this golden box which contained the Ten Commandments, those stone tablets that were with the Ten Commandments written on them by God and given down to Moses. It also contained a jar of manna, that bread from heaven, that fell down and fed the Israelites. It had a golden lid with two cherubim on the top of it, And over this all, the glory cloud of the Lord would appear. That's the Old Testament equivalent of the real presence. We've seen that the Holy of Holies was covered with this massive veil. And embroidered on the veil were images of cherubim. Why? Because among other things, the Holy of Holies is a symbolic Garden of Eden. Why is that? Because that's where the glory cloud of the Lord presence of God would dwell but since the fall man was no longer able to dwell in the presence of the Lord which is why the holy of holies this liturgical garden of Eden was veiled it was veiled it was closed and the cherubim on the veil symbolically guard the entrance to that holy of holies just like the cherubim that guard the entrance to the garden of Eden reminding everyone even the priest there's no longer any access to this intimate presence of God except for the high priest on one day a year, there is no longer any access at all to the Ark of the Covenant, to the inside, to the manna, the bread from heaven. These things have been veiled to men. Now remember too, as we've seen according to the rabbis, the job of the Old Testament priests representing the people of Israel was to reform rites that symbolized the service of their nation as a whole right in front of the Holy of Holies, right at the very threshold of the place where God is present. Of course, all this prefigured the Catholic liturgy. Just as the sanctuary of Eden or the tabernacle was once the very threshold of heaven where man came into communion with God, so now an altar is the very threshold of heaven, where the priest performs rites on behalf of the church as whole and even brings God down into communion with man. And now a priest can go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies not just once a year, but every day. He can give us the fruit of the tree of life. He can open the ark, the ciborium, and because he can do that, we can receive that heavenly bread every day. Only now that heavenly bread is not a shadow. It's God himself. Moses came down from the holy mountain with the word of God carved into stone tablets. And the priest comes down from the holy mountain to the altar with the word of God made flesh. Here's the basic idea of the liturgy. We've seen this before. Everyone should burn this into his mind. God designed the structure of reality in such a way that the liturgy repairs... And restores creation. That's what we're doing here. God has designed the structure of reality in such a way that the liturgy repairs and restores creation. It reestablishes the limits and restores the damages caused by sin. The graces that were lost by Adam. The terrible offenses that have been offered up to God. The liturgy makes amends to God for all this. The liturgy reorders this fallen world. By means of the liturgy, order pushes out disorder. Grace drives away sin. The spiritually sick and weakened are strengthened and fed. The spiritually dead are resurrected and given the gift of spiritual life. What goes on in the divine liturgy determines what goes on in the world. Okay, That's reality. That's the way it is. And as we've seen before, If there's deliberate liturgical abuse by the priests, liturgically, they're acting out the original sin right in God's face. So when there's deliberate liturgical abuse, you get the kind of world that we're living in. What goes on in the liturgy determines what goes on in the world. Okay, that's the review. Let's keep those thoughts in the back of our minds and return to the current topic. All right, we've already asked... The question, let's remind ourselves of it. Why is it during wedding and nuptial mass the couple first exchange vows right on the edge of the sanctuary and then immediately after that they move up and hear mass in the sanctuary? What's up with that? Why do we have laity up here that aren't altar boys? What's up with that? What are they doing in the sanctuary? Just before the couple exchanges vows, the father brings his daughter forward right here at the very threshold, right at the edge of the sanctuary. The sanctuary, of course, is the liturgical garden of Eden. So the father has just formally presented his daughter as a chaste virgin before God. Then, right there, at the edge of the sanctuary, the bridegroom and the bride exchange vows. As soon as they do that, as long as they're in the state of grace, a flood of sanctifying grace, of supernatural life, pours from Christ our Lord through the groom into the soul of the bride and a flood of sanctifying grace pours from Christ our Lord through the bride into the soul of the groom it's a recreation. the couple have suddenly entered a holier state much holier than they were only moments before when they both came up in the state of grace before God they're now joined together until death in the state of holy matrimony and then they come forward in the sanctuary what are we seeing? We are seeing a new Adam and a new Eve here in the new garden, recreated and placed in the state of holiness with their souls brimming over with that supernatural life that was lost by Adam and Eve, filled with that supernatural life that was snuffed out in the garden by the original sin. This newlywed couple, this new Adam and Eve have just received the same incredible blessing that God gave to our first parents in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. In the first place, and most importantly, of course, to be spiritually fruitful. But in the second place, to use the absolutely incredible creative power, and if God wills it, to cooperate Him in the use of that power in bringing the next generation to life, of bringing new immortal beings in to existence. So at the very beginning of their life of holy matrimony, they're placed here into the liturgical garden of Eden. and They have this incredible privilege of being almost at the foot of the altar when the heavenly floodgates fly open. And during a mass that's being offered specifically for their behalf, they're almost at the headwaters of the rivers of grace that pour down off that altar and into their souls and out through the world. And then... After the Holy Sacrifice, they come forth from the sanctuary. They come out away from the altar, and from then on, their mission is to bring holiness into that domestic sanctuary, the domestic church, the little Garden of Eden that should be their home, to bring holiness out from the altar and out into the world. Their mission is to establish a little outpost of supernatural life in this darkened, fallen world to bring order into their little corner of the disordered world and then come back, at least weekly, here, right to the edge of the garden to receive the bread of life so that they can stay spiritually strong and safe in their journey to heaven. Now, before we close today, let's consider two other points quickly. First, we've just been pondering the fact that liturgically speaking, a wedding is a recreation. We've seen the groom as a new Adam, and the bride as a new Eve, here in the new garden, placed in the state of holiness, their souls brimming over with sanctifying grace, and blessed with the same blessing given to our first parents. But we know, all of us know, the harmonious relationship between man and woman was terribly wounded by the original sin. And since our Lord comes to make all things new, and the liturgy is a recreation, how is this terrible order addressed? Three ways. The correct relationship between man and wife is made clear by liturgical ceremony. Another apostolic tradition visibly represents it. And if that weren't enough, the epistle for the nuptial mass explicitly spells it out. We'll consider the apostolic tradition at a later date. Today, we'll only look at the liturgical ceremony. In the beginning, before original sin, there was a perfectly harmonious relationship between the head, man, Adam, and the heart, his woman, Eve. But that harmony has been so disrupted by original and actual sin that in the current relationships between husband and wives, we can see sins ranging from male tyranny to this perversity of, of matriarchal female domination of her husband. So before we consider the liturgical ceremony, let's take a moment to take a look at the model family. The family which God holds up for every one of us is the family to model ourselves after. That's the Holy Family. Now, we all know that in the Holy Family, St. Joseph was the head and Our Lady was the heart. That's not a newsflash. This is the true and proper relationship between every husband and every wife, with no exceptions. St. Joseph is the perfect model of a husband who lovingly cares for, provides for, and leads his family. And the Blessed Virgin Mary is the perfect model of submission. She doesn't obey St. Joseph because he has a stronger will, because he has a more dominant personality. Our lady has a far, far stronger will and a far more dominant personality in terms of the strength of her personality than St. Joseph. So why does she play St. Joseph? Because he's her husband. And his God-given role as her husband is to lead the family. And her God-given role as wife is to follow and support her husband and be a helpmate to him. This is not some kind of weird idea. If we're going to waltz, I point out to people, it takes two people to waltz. The man leads and the woman follows. It would be pretty stupid for the guy to be out there by himself or the woman. That's not a waltz, and you can't both lead. That's how it sets up. It does not mean that one person is less dignified in the waltz. It means you can't waltz without a leader, and you can't waltz without a follower. That's how it is. Certainly we're not denigrating women when we look at Our Lady. How is this expressed liturgically in the wedding? It's obvious. The bride is given away. She is led down the aisle by her father on her father's arm. Why? Because she's been under his care, and then in front of God, he literally gives her hand right there to the new man that will take care of her. Her father literally hands her over to her groom. And at the end of the service, what happens? Her husband leads her down the aisle and out of the church and into the world. Think of what this means. She's visibly acknowledging and enacting her husband's headship right here in front of God. Not only God, but men. All the men in the pews. Right here in front of God and man. The sacraments are no time for play-acting. If she doesn't intend to fulfill her duty to honor and obey her husband in Christ, then she shouldn't have come up the aisle. And if he doesn't intend to fulfill his duty to love and care for his wife, as Christ does the church, then he shouldn't have taken her hand. Our sick, perverted society may not hold her to obedience to her husband or hold him to love and care for his wife, but the Lord certainly will. There's no question the Lord will. It doesn't matter who has the stronger will and personality any more than it mattered in the Holy Family. One partner in each couple has a stronger will or a more dominant personality. God knows it. He made you that way. That's how it is. One partner is going to have a naturally stronger will or dominant personality. But if you're married, married, it doesn't matter which one has the stronger will. It doesn't matter which one has a stronger personality. In all things approved by Christ, the man's in charge. The man's in charge, and he's bound to love and care for his wife and family. So obedience stops rebellion, which is part of the fruit of original sin, and the love stops tyranny. Obedience goes against rebellion. Love goes against tyranny. He's the head. She's the heart. That's how it is. That's how God made it. He knows it. He made it that way. That's reality. Period. Close the book. Last point. Consider the fact that during the exchange of vows and the nuptial mass, the couple are here, but they're not facing each other. Right from the beginning, what are they doing? Right from the beginning, they're faced with, and they're both facing, the cross. It's worth meditating, really worth meditating on the reality that the marriage and their very first act of married life take place in the shadow of the cross. It's a stark reminder in this fallen world there's no escaping the cross. The price of recreation, the price of order replacing disorder, the price of resurrecting the spiritually dead and bringing them back to life, the price of marital happiness, the price of their eternal happiness is present and overshadowing their marriage from the very beginning. They have come together at the foot of the cross and then kneeling before it, they have vowed to spend their lives facing it together. Now, we've only scratched the surface here, okay? There are literally levels of meanings we haven't touched upon that are implicit or almost explicit in everything we've said. Meditate on this. There's all kinds of conclusions that are obvious from things we've already said. It'll really enrich your understanding of holy matrimony. We'll close with a quote from a Hungarian bishop written some 70 years ago, Bishop Toth. It is a great joy if a wife can say to her husband, I can thank you that I have such strong support in life and that I have such good children. It is a great joy if a husband can say to his wife, I can thank you that I have such an understanding life companion and such a peaceful home. But the greatest joy of all will be if someday they can say to each other, I can thank you that I have attained eternal life. Close quote. The greatest joy of all will be if someday they can say to each other, I can thank you that I have attained eternal life. Amen.